Good to see a couple more visitors slip in the back here. Good to have you gentlemen with us here today. Glad you're here. Uh, beginning uh, in verse 4, we will read responsively. I'll read alone in verse 5, and we'll begin reading the odd verses beginning in verse 5. Uh, we'll read those out loud and together. The Bible says in verse 4, For an angel went down in a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, uh, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Verse 5 together. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now for a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus, answers, uh, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Today we're going to continue our uh, series, Engage, and we're going to talk about, uh, out of John 5, the idea of engaging the sick. Engaging the sick. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I do pray today that you would give us clarity of mind and thought, and Lord, a discerning and understanding heart. And Lord, some of the message will be aimed at the head, and Lord, to give us more information. But Lord, may that uh, move from the head down into our heart. May we be inspired to go out and live just like you, Lord. May we be, in every sense of the term, Christians. May we be many representations of Christ. May we live our lives that way. And so, Lord, as we are inspired by your compassion that you showed on the unfortunate and the down and out, may that inspire us to go out and live and do the same. May we have your words and your message and your truth constantly on our lips. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. As we continue our uh, series, Engage, this morning, we will look at yet another person that Christ engaged with the Gospel. We have walked through the pages of John's Gospel, and we have, what we have discovered is that we have a caring and soul-conscious Christ. A caring and soul-conscious Christ. Jesus believed in His message. I mean, supremely believed in His message. Jesus, uh, Jesus believed in His calling, and nothing was going to keep Him from sharing it with anyone and everyone who would listen to Him. It didn't matter if they liked Him or not. He had a message to get out and deliver, and if they were going to give Him their ear, He was going to give it to them. He, Jesus was not going to be held responsible for not communicating to the truth to anyone and everyone who was willing to let Him give out that eternal message. Now, his method was simple. Jesus' method was simple. In a sense, it was complex because he was able to tailor-make the gospel to every individual he met to meet their need. He met them where they were and led them to where he needed to be. But uh, his method ultimately was simple. What was the method Jesus used in his soul-conscious effort of, of, of sharing the truth? His method was that he would take everyday objects that people were familiar with and comfortable with, and he would use them to drive home his eternal message. Christ communicated the gospel with his lifestyle, but more importantly, Christ communicated the gospel with his language, his language, his words. He lifted up the truth of salvation everywhere he went. 
this series, we're looking at one, two, three, four, five different uh, chapters of John, uh, John 3 through John 7, and five different people or groups of people that Christ engaged with the gospel. You can throw that next slide up there for me. In John 3, we find that Christ engaged this scholar. We already looked at this. We talked about his conversations with Nicodemus, and he met Nicodemus where he was. What physical example, earthly Temporal example did Christ use with Nicodemus the scholar? He used that of childbirth. I gotta tell you, I wonder if maybe Nicodemus' wife had just recently given birth, and that's why Christ used the example. I don't know. I don't know if that to be the case or not. But I'm left to wonder if maybe childbirth was fresh on the mind of Nicodemus. So when Christ met Nicodemus, he said to him, Nicodemus, marvel not that I say to thee, ye must be born again. You must be born anew. There has to be a new birth that comes through Christ. And Christ used the example of childbirth to drive home the truth of an eternal birth. A birthing again into the family of God. The very next chapter, John chapter 4, we find Jesus having departed Jerusalem, headed back toward Galilee, uh, and He uh, goes, the Bible tells us in John 4, 4, He must needs go through Samaria. We looked at how that He engaged the sinner. The sinner. Now, everybody's a sinner. But this lady, it was apparent and obvious to her that she was a sinner. It was right in front of her eyes. There was no getting away from it. The lifestyle she lived, she was out getting water at noon. The Bible tells us in the sixth hour at twelve o'clock. And there she was getting water at a time where it was hot out probably. She was avoiding the crowds. She was avoiding the scuttlebutt. She was avoiding the gossip. She was there gathering water all by herself and she encountered Jesus. Jesus would give her the gospel, what method would Jesus use? He would use the example of the very water she was drawing and He would tell her, I am the living water. And if you drink of Me, you will never thirst again. You'll never thirst again. Again, He met her where she was and He led her to where she needed to be to be saved. Today we'll look at the sick man by the pool of Bethesda that Jesus engaged. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And he didn't need a, an object illustration because there was a pool laying right beside them that an angel would stir. And Jesus uh, would use that. In John 6, Jesus engages his skeptics. The crowd that had followed him off the mount from the feeding of the 5,000. And they had uh, swarmed him and they had told him, feed us more, feed us more. And Jesus used the analogy of their hungry stomachs to talk about how they had to figuratively eat of the body and blood of Christ to be saved. He would draw an analogy between food and drink to eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood. Figuratively, the accepting of Christ internally for salvation. In John chapter 7, we find Christ engaged the scorners as He gives the Gospel in a very harsh way to the Pharisees. And we'll look at that more in the weeks to come. Let's jump back to John chapter 5 where we began this morning with the reading of the passage. What we find is a compassionate Christ loving on a very weary and lonely man. We peek into the soul-winning style of our Master, and we see our powerful God and Maker, the God who created the universe with His words, the God who can count the stars one and all, the God who, uh, the God who measures the universe with a span, the God who holds the waters of the world in the palm of His hands, 
reaching down to an impotent, the Bible uses the word impotent, a crippled man, lame in his legs, and loving on this man. You know, the truth today is that while God is powerful enough to know everything about everything, God is personal enough to know everything about you. He cares about you. He doesn't just care about the, the people of the world, the children of the world. He cares about you individually. I cannot wrap my mind around a God who can love me supremely and know everywhere, every detail about my life, everywhere I go, every thought I think, and know everything about what you think and everything that you do, and know everything about the billion plus people in China, and know on the same level every detail about the billion plus people in India, and know every detail about, about, about everyone. When God stooped down next to this wearied, lonely, sick man, uh, diseased, he already knew every detail of his life. He knew the condition of his heart, and he knew exactly what that man needed. Why? Because he's a God that's a God of compassion. Don't miss what I'm about to say right here, because this really is the launch board, the, the diving board for the sermon, if you will. This is the launching pad. This, What I'm about to say uh, really is the crux of what I'm getting at here today. Uh, I propose that there are many, many people that are sick amongst us and around us. Many, many people that are sick. Now, some are sick with a physical ailment. And that's what we think of when we think of sick, isn't it? We think of someone that has been diagnosed with cancer, sitting in an oncologist's office. Or we think of someone who has Lou Gehrig's disease, as our brother back here. We think of uh, others who maybe uh, have uh, 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 some other debilitating disease. And uh, maybe someone who is handicapped and uh, relying on a wheelchair. Or we look at someone who's broken an arm or a leg. Or we see someone who has the flu or malaria. We look at someone who has a, a, a mono or, 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 or just really a really bad cold and we think they're sick. They're sick. And our terms of sick generally begin and end at the physical. But can I tell you that the idea of being sick goes well beyond the physical. There are many people in this room right here today, physically everything works. You might have a couple of aches and pains, but you could jump up and down. You could run up and down the aisle if you wanted to or needed to. Uh, You are physically okay, but you are a sick person. When I say sick, you might be sick emotionally. Emotionally. You carry hurts. You walk in this church with a smile on your face, but deep down inside, you are a mess. Some of you here today, uh, you might not be sick emotionally. Maybe you're sick socially. You have no social skills. And you run and hide and you're, uh, you are uh, antisocial is the word I'm looking for. Um, you're socially sick. Others here today are spiritually sick. You're just spiritually anemic, spiritually starved. Your idea of, of religion and God is you show up once a week on a Sunday morning and you have a pastor feed you a sermon and then out the door you go and you're spiritually as scrawny and anemic as could be. There just really isn't much to you spiritually and you're spiritually very, very sick. I propose that those who are sick... Watch this now, and willing to admit it and accept it. Those that are sick and willing to admit it and accept it are more open to the gospel than those who are not. People that are sick and have come to grips with the fact that they're sick, boy, they're open to the gospel. I propose that what these people need, these sick people need, is the compassion of Christ 
shown to them so that He, God, Jesus, can heal them and save them. What I want to do this morning is take the story out of John chapter 5 and look at five thoughts. So one, two, three, four, and a five. Five thoughts about the compassion Christ showed to the impotent man as Christ engaged the sick. Number one today, note the pool's reputation. The pool's reputation. John chapter 5 and verse number 2. You look back there with me in your Bible. John chapter 5 and verse number 2. The Bible says, Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew, th- Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. So we find that right in the center of Jerusalem, right by the sheep gate, the sheep gate probably would have been, the sheep market probably would have been near the, the temple. The people would have stopped at the sheep market to buy a lamb on their way into sacrifice at the temple. So the proximity of the sheep market probably would have been near the center of the town where the temple was. And by the sheep market, most likely near the temple, we find this Pool. We find this pool called Bethesda. Letter A, note, for some it was a house of grace. For some it was a house of grace. Now, the word Bethesda in the Hebrew is a compound word. And we're blessed because uh, the Bible tells us it was a Hebrew word here. So, Bethesda, those that know their Bible well will quickly recognize the first four letters of the word Beth. Beth meaning house. You might remember uh, 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 Jacob called the place where the, the ladder ascended up, up, up to heaven and the angels came down to and from heaven. He called that place Beth-El. Beth-El. El meaning God, a name for God. Beth meaning house. The word Bethel means house of God. This is Bethesda or house. House of grace. So the word Bethesda is a compound word. Esda, uh, stay with me here. Esda uh, is the Hebrew word hesed, H-S-D, hesed. And it, its primary meaning was grace. Kind, gracious, or merciful. For some, Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda, was a house of grace. Look with me at verse 3 and 4 there in your Bible. John chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. The Bible says... In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, withered, uh, waiting for the uh, uh, moving of the waters. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Uh, whatsoever then first, uh, or whosoever rather, then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So interestingly enough, this pool had five porches. Five in the Bible is the number of grace. This was a house of grace. Five porches where the halt and withered and blind and impotent would gather. And the, an angel would come down, the Bible tells us, and stir that pool. As the water was stirred, the first person in the pool was healed. Now, interestingly enough, uh, i just quickly get this in here. Interestingly enough, in many translations of the English Bible, the verse 4 has been completely removed from the Bible. It's not even there. Now, the reasoning is, is because they, the translators seem to think that that concept of an angel stirring the water doesn't fit the rest of Scripture. But my friend, you can't pick and choose what's in the Bible. It doesn't work that way. Verse 4 is in my Bible. If it isn't in yours, you probably need to get a new Bible. And I don't mean to be mean about that. You probably need to get a new Bible. Um, an angel would come down and stir the waters. 
Now, this was an angel sent from heaven by God, and this was an opportunity for a person to be healed. Now, we live in a different era. Uh, uh, the Bible word, the big, uh, uh, high, fancy, uh, uh, expensive word for that is um, uh, dispensation. We live in a different dispensation or a different era. Those things don't happen anymore where there's a pool and an angel that stirs. But it did happen here. And the sick would gather there, and they would find this to be a place of hope. A place of hope. Can you imagine if you uh, had a loved one that was uh, diagnosed with being deaf? Or a loved one that fell from a roof cleaning out a gutter, as we heard earlier, and um, uh, hurt themselves and were told they would never walk again. Maybe you were told you had some debilitating disease, like the lady that had the issue of blood. She couldn't stop bleeding. There is a place you can go where the grace of God is evidently seen. And if you're the first one down in the water, you can be healed. As you approached the pool for the first time, you would look out and you would see grace. Every time that angel came and stirred that water, you would see grace. I've got to say that White Oak Baptist Church, this ought to be looked upon by our community as a house of grace. A house of grace. You know what sin does to people? It chews them up and it spits them out and it hurts them. Oftentimes the people that get chewed up and spit out by sin, they don't know that it was sin that's the culprit. They don't know that it's sin that's the problem. Uh, But there are people that realize, hey, I've got to quit living this lifestyle because it's hurting me bad. And they go and they look for a place that shows the grace of God. Now I've got to say that White Oak Baptist Church, that ought to be our goal. This church ought to be a place where sinners feel welcome to come, where sinners can hear the gospel preached, and the gospel can be uh, proclaimed and heralded loudly, and the grace of God can flow freely on those that are sinners. And I've got to say, White Oak Baptist Church, good job on being a friendly church. This place is just friendly, it's warm, it's welcoming. Praise the Lord for that. I've got to say though that if someone walks in that back door back there and they're not dressed like you, they don't act like you, they don't talk like you, maybe they've got a neck tattoo, they've got a tattoo on their face, maybe they've got earrings or or jewelry all over their face, don't turn and go the other direction. Run to them. Embrace them. Love them. White Oak Baptist Church is not a country club. This is a spiritual hospital where the spiritually sick in the community ought to feel like they can go. It ought to be that if you're around town and you're saying, man, I am so down and out of my luck and, and life has just kicked me to the curb and I don't know where to go, it ought to be that someone ought to only have to ask around a little bit and someone says, hey, why don't you go on down there to Main Street Putney, to White Oak Baptist Church. The grace of God will flow freely all over you down at that place. That ought to be how it works. And it's got to be a team effort. It's got to be a group effort. While some saw... Bethesda as a house of grace, letter B, for some it was a house of disgrace. It was a house of disgrace. Now, interestingly enough, the Hebrew word hesed has two definitions. Two definitions. In some instances, it means mercy, kindness, or grace. In other instances, it means reproach and shame. Now you say, Pastor, how can a word mean two opposite things? And I've got to tell you, we got words like that in the English language. Did you know that? They're called, they have a name for them, they're called contronyms. 
Contronyms. Now, there's other ways of calling them as well, but contronym is one of the ways. You've heard of a synonym or a homonym or an antonym. A contronym is a word that, depending on its context, can mean the exact opposite of itself. Let me give you a couple of examples in English here, okay? Uh, um, uh, the word overlook. Someone could say, I was asked to overlook the class while they were playing on the playground. What does that mean? That means you were asked to overlook, oversee, watch the children, make sure nothing happens to them. How about the usage of the word overlook? I overlooked that detail accidentally. Now, it's the same word. It means the exact opposite. All right, here's another one, okay? This one's simple. Someone says to you, go seed the lawn. Go seed the lawn. What does that mean? That means you're to go out with one of those green things that spread the seeds, right? You get at the store. I'm sorry, I'm an uneducated preacher. I don't know what you call those things, right? You get one of those green things that spread the seed. By the way, a little tip for you. Winter's coming up. This is a life hack. That's a great salt spreader as well. If you didn't know that, use that to spread salt all over your driveway. Works wonders, okay? But uh, you put seed down in that and you push it around on your lawn and you throw the seed everywhere. You're applying seed down. But how about the word seed in the sense of someone says to you, go seed the tomato. Well, that means take the seeds out. So in one sense, it's put the seed down. In another sense, it's take the seed out. That's a contronym. And here we find the word hesed. In some places in the Hebrew, depending on the context, it means grace, mercy, kindness. In uh, Proverbs chapter 25, I'm not going to read it right now, you can read it later. Uh, Proverbs chapter 25 verse 10, you find the word hesed translated shame. And right there, uh, it means shame and it means anything but grace. Here's the point I'm trying to draw out. Please see this with me today. There were those that walked past the pool and said, house of grace. There were others that walked past the pool and wagged their head and said, house of disgrace. That's ugly. It's an eyesore. Those people are bothersome. Get them out of here. There were people that looked at that pool of Bethesda where people were being healed and helped and they thought, it stinks over there. I'm sure that maybe the person in charge of the tourism of Jerusalem probably uh, was lobbying with the city council. Can't we get that moved to the other side of town? Uh, right by our beautiful temple is this pool with all these blind people wandering around and these uh, poor people and these uh, uh, people with wilted hands and legs that don't work and they're laying around. It's such an eyesore. What a disgrace to our town. What a disgrace. What was the difference between those that saw a house of grace and those that saw a house of disgrace? It was just simply perspective. It was attitude. I have, uh, I have seen churches that have ceased to have a bus ministry. And their reason is it's expensive. Or uh, uh, it's too much of a liability on the church. Or uh, we don't want those kids coming in and using markers and marking up our bathrooms. And we don't want graffiti all over our building. And we don't want our songbooks, uh, pages torn out or gum stuck in our envelopes. We don't want uh, seats on our buses, uh, the, bu- the, the, the buses we have torn. And we don't want the mess that they bring. What a disgrace to have those kids here. And i got to say that for every little boy and girl that comes and puts a tear in his seat but gets the Jesus in their heart, it is worth it, it is worth it, it is worth it. This is to be a house of grace. There are those that will look at White Oak Baptist Church. If we do our job, there will be those that look at our church and say, 
pastor, or they will look at our church and say, that is place is a disgrace. Look at the crowd that they attract. And I've got to say that if we get that reputation in the area because people don't like who we have here, then praise the Lord, that means we're doing something right. If you're looking for a new church, and I say this regularly, so don't anyone take this personal. If you're looking for a new church to go where you can go uh, be a, a museum fixture, you're looking at the wrong place. We're not about museum fixtures. We're here to give the, the, the medicine of God's Word to spiritually sick people. And everybody in here on some level struggles with some spiritual sickness, including the preacher himself. The Word of God is the medicine that heals us all. Number two, we see the pool's resident. The pool's resident. First, we saw the pool's reputation. Some saw it as a house of grace. Others saw it as a house of disgrace. Secondly, we find the pool's resident. The one that Jesus singled out anyway. Look at verse 5 with me of John chapter 5. The Bible says, And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. I imagine this man had probably been to every doctor he could think of. He had been to one specialist after another. And maybe after he had seen the last specialist that was up the food chain, up, up the ladder there, the expert of experts for his withered legs that did not work. That doctor told him, he said, I, I, I can't help you. Medicine is not advanced enough to help you. But there is a pool in Jerusalem. And if you can get down in it, word has it, if you're the first one in, you'll be made whole. This man, this man found some people, maybe even paid some people, to carry him there to that pool and lay him there. He laid by the pool day after day after day, wanting to get in the pool, but not able to get in. He was handicapped for 38 years. 38 years. I wonder if this man thought to himself, no man cares for my soul. I wonder if as he laid there and other people would come and they were placed in the pool by loved ones. Maybe he rejoiced with them. But maybe a hint of jealousy? Maybe just a hint? How come I've got nobody to help me in the pool? There for 38 years. This man lay there. We don't know how long. He was handicapped for 38 years. Laid there for a good long time. Number three, we find the Lord's regard. The Lord's regard. Somebody showed some regard to this man. Somebody came and loved on him. Somebody showed compassion. Look at verse 6. The Bible says, When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, notice this question, Wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou be made whole? When I was in Bible college, I had a good friend of mine named Mark Rader. Mark, Mark is now a missionary to Peru, uh, where my wife is from. Uh, he's a pastor at a church on the outskirts of Lima, doing a fine job. Mark is, uh, has one of the purest hearts for God of anybody I've ever met. Just a zealous soul winner. Him and his wife are just wonderful people, doing a great job on the mission field there in Peru. Mark and I worked the same ministry in college. We worked in uh, South Chicago in some of the poorest neighborhoods. Every weekend we would go in and minister in, in people's homes and we would uh, uh, just love on the people in the community, bring them to a 2.30 afternoon service there in a local church building. 
And I remember Mark, uh, we had a, a time of testimony during one of our Saturday meetings. And Mark stood up and shared this story. He said that while out knocking doors looking for new people to come to our chapel church, uh, he was invited into a home and brought back to a back bedroom where an older man lie. That older man was lit, uh, his legs, he was uh, paralyzed from his uh, waist down. His legs did not work. He had had that happen. I believe Mark said that had happened from a fall that had happened to him years prior. And the man was just very despondent, discouraged. The room was dark. The man was lonely and depressed. And Mark came in. The loved one uh, had tried all kinds of ways to encourage him and thought maybe this uh, religious uh, man could come in and help. And Mark came in and sat down in the dark room in a chair and turned on a a low-lit lamp and uh, began to talk to the man. And the man uh, uh, slowly but surely began to open up to Mark. And uh, Mark asked him, he said, Sir, if God could do one thing for you today, what would you have him do? Now, before I give you the man's answer, which I'm sure you can guess, I want to ask you the same question. Christian, if God could come down for you today and do one thing for you, what would you ask Him to do? What would you ask Him to do? That goes back to that sickness point we talked about. Let me just pause the sermon here and ask a question. And if you're... Public and open enough to answer it, great. If you're too private to do that, that's okay. How many of you here today say, Pastor, on some level, in some way, if I think about it long and hard enough, I am sick either emotionally, physically, spiritually, or socially. In some way, on some level, I am one of those things. Would you hold up your hand? Many hands. Many hands. And again, some people are too private maybe to raise their hand. Put them back up for a minute. I'd say that's about 40% of the room, maybe 50% of the room. If it's that intense inside a room of people who come to church regularly, how much greater is it out there? Folks, we live in a hurting world. We live in a world where people are dying on the inside. They're sick. They're sick. Jesus looked at this man and He said, Wilt thou be made whole? My friend Mark looked at this guy. And he said, if God could do one thing for you, what would you have him do? And the man said, I'd have him give me my legs back. And Mark said, my friend, I don't know that God will give you your legs back in this life. But I can tell you about how you can have your legs back in the eternal life. Mark walked him down the gospel And that man with tears running down his cheeks prayed and accepted Jesus. You know, a million years from now, when that guy's still running up and down streets of gold, that time of being crippled is going to seem like just a blip on the radar. Just a short time. The encouragement to the Christians here today is if you're going through a hard time, you're going to get to heaven in a million years, you're going to look back, and it's going to seem like such a small thing. You'll have a new perspective on it. Jesus was able to show a kind regard His love, His compassion on this man. Why? Because the man knew he needed help. Please hear what I'm about to say here. If you stumbled into the door of our church today, or you're listening to this online, or maybe a friend has handed you a copy of this sermon via CD, or or somehow turned you on to our church, uh, and you're listening to this somehow, uh, however you're hearing this message, Jesus cannot heal you until you admit that you are sick. 
We put it again this way. You cannot be saved and given eternal life in Christ until you admit that you are lost in your sin. You say, but I'm a good person. I've done great things. And the Bible tells us in Revelation that God will behold uh, those that are small and great. He will try them. And after He looks at their works, He's going to cast them into hell because your good works are pitiful in the sight of God. They're not worthy in the sight of God. We, we hold up our effort of righteousness and God says, it's weak and puny in comparison to who I am. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. If you want to be good enough to get to heaven, then try being perfect. Jesus looked at this man and He said, wilt thou be made whole? Before the man could be made whole, He needed to see that He, he, he was in need. He was sick. He had a problem. And I'm here today to say to you that you cannot be, uh, you cannot be given your spiritual sight until you realize you're spiritually blind. You cannot uh, be given spiritual life until you realize that you're spiritually dead and you're born in your trespasses and sins. Wilt thou be made whole? The question is to those who know that they need a physician. They know they need outside help. Today, Christ looks at you and asks the same question. Sinner, sinner, wilt thou be made whole? Number four, we see the impotence restrictions. The impotence restrictions. The impotent man's restrictions. Look at verse 7 with me. The Bible says, The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man. If you underline in your Bible, would you underline that phrase, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Before we talk about what this man didn't have, let me tell you what he did have and what you need that he had. What he had was perspective. He had perspective. He saw his need. And he realized that he didn't have any help. He saw that he was sick. He was crippled. We have some uh, folks that go to the Nursing home, every week, one of our men that went to the nursing home was sharing with a group of us uh, men on Tuesday night that uh, he dealt with an elderly lady who I think he said was in her 80s or 90s, and that uh, the lady would not admit that she had ever done anything wrong in her life. She had never told a lie, not once. She had never stolen anything. Now that's extreme. I've had children tell me they've never done anything wrong, probably because they were afraid they were going to get in trouble. But I've never heard of someone that old. Could be the lady was uh, beginning to lose her mind. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the lady. But can I tell you that the lady wasn't too far off from a lot of other people I know. This lady's perspective was totally skewed. But there are a whole lot of people out there that have a perspective that's skewed. They think that some reason, somehow, God's going to let them into heaven because they're trying their best to be a good person. My friend, you don't realize how raunchy and awful your sin is to God. You don't see it. God doesn't care about your righteousness. He can't quit staring at your sin. This man knew he had a problem. And I would say this, that before you can become born again, you need proper perspective that you are sick spiritually. 
The second thing I see that this man had was faith. He had faith. Why else would have he been laying by that pool? Clearly he had faith. Now, someone had told him about the pool before he ever saw it. And his request was, take me to the pool. Take me to the pool. Now, Jesus would show up and the pool, the faith would go from being in the pool to being in Jesus. We'll see that in just a moment here. But the faith was already there. I would liken faith to being a muscle. Um, when it's not exercised, it becomes weaker. Atrophy sets in. But the more you exercise it, the stronger it is. This man, his faith muscle was strong. It was strong. He was buff in faith. Very built in faith. But he did not have a person to get him in the pool. He did not have someone. I said earlier that those that know they're sick, they've admitted they're sick, they've accepted they're sick, boy, they're ready to receive the gospel. The question isn't, are they ready to receive it? The question is, are you actively seeking to share it? Now again, the whole concept of this little mini-series we're covering, Engage, is this. Are you actively engaging others in the gospel? You say, to your, you say Pastor, I, you don't understand how nervous and scared I am to walk up and confront someone on their eternal soul. You say, you, you, you know, you're a pastor and you've been in the ministry for well over ten years and you've grown up in the home of a minister and, and, and th- you've been doing this since you were little and you just don't know how scared and terrified I am to walk up and approach someone and I'd say, yes I do. Yes I do. I remember being a 12-year-old boy. I was out visiting a bus route with my father. and We were in a project area in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And it was one-level apartments. And they were kind of in a large square. There was probably about seven or eight acres of open land in that area. And so I was on one end. I was 12, visiting some kids, younger kids that came that I knew well. I could see my dad well on the other end over there. And so I finished my visits and I was heading toward my father. And I came to a little seesaw... Uh, some seesaws there in the middle, and two uh, uh, two teenage girls, probably about 14 or 15 years old, a few years old than I was, came walking by, and the Lord started thumping me in the chest. He was saying, you need to witness to them. You need to tell them how to go to heaven. And I thought, but I'm scared! I've never done that before! Well, you need to tell them. And so I was nervous, man. I was sweating up a storm. My hands were sweaty, and my heart was racing 100 miles an hour. And I said, hey, girls, can I tell you about Jesus? And they said, sure. And they both came to a stop. And I pulled out my Gospel Tracker, or New Testament, whichever it was, and and I gave them probably the worst presentation of the Gospel that could possibly be given. I was scared out of my mind. And I got down to the end. And I had heard my dad do this hundreds of times. And so I knew what to say. I was just scared because it was my first time. I got down to the end and I said to these girls, I said, would you like to pray and accept Jesus as your Savior? And they said, sure. I said, you would? (laughs) Really? Are you serious? All right, let's do this. And they bowed their head and they prayed the sinner's prayer. And man, look, my dad had to peel me up off the clouds when 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 he got to me. I was so excited. I'd say this to you today. You may be nervous giving the gospel in its entirety. And if that's where you're at right now, that's okay. That's okay to be there. But you ought to make it your goal to progress toward that, to where you can give it. You say, Pastor, 
I, I hear you, and in theory, I agree with you. I just don't know if I'll ever get there. Is there something I can do? Well, here's something you can do. You can take a, a handful of, of, of gospel invitations in your hand, and you can invite people to come with you to church. That's a great start. You know, the lady in uh, John 4, we looked at last week, after she got saved, do you know she didn't run down there and immediately start walking people through the Romans road? You know what she did do? She said, hey, come with me and meet this man, Jesus. She took them to the source that could help her. I am committed moving forward on a weekly basis on Sunday mornings to give a thorough presentation of the gospel every Sunday morning at some point in my sermon. Here's why I'm telling you that. You can be guaranteed 52 Sundays a year, barring a snowstorm that shuts the church down, 52 Sundays a year, if you get a friend, a family member, a relative, a stranger into the church, they're going to hear the gospel on a Sunday morning. That's a great start. You may not be able to give them the gospel, but you can be that man. This, this guy here, this impotent man, he said, I have no man. Oh, what a sad testimony. I have no man. And all around the Stratford area, we have people that are dying. They're sick. They're hurting. And you look at them and you say, do you want to be made whole? And they say, I do, but I don't know how. I do, but I have no man. Oh, my friend, it's time we start walking around and we look at people through the eyes of the compassion of Christ. We're looking at this man's restrictions. We talked about what he had. Let's talk about what he lacked. He lacked a friend. He lacked a friend. This past Friday, Pastor Dave um, uh, went to pick up his wife's broken iPad. I believe the iPad uh, is owned by uh, Brother Owens. Uh, Krista does some secretarial work for Brother Owens remotely. And uh, the iPad had gotten cracked. And they had taken it to get it fixed five times. Get the screen fixed five times. It kept popping off. And so they kept taking it back to this repair shop in New Haven and uh, you know, the, someone warranties their work. You don't pay someone else. You just keep taking it back, right? And, um, after the fifth time, Pastor Dave finally figured out why he, it kept breaking. It kept breaking because God wanted him to share the gospel with a man fixing it. And Pastor Dave's words were, I was a little thick-headed on that. Um, and so Friday night, he went to pick it up. He left here from work. He went to pick it up. He got there about 15 minutes before the place was supposed to close. And the door was already locked. Don't you hate when people do that? They shut the business down before it's time to shut down. And you bang on the door and, we're not here, go away. Well, I hear you in there. No, 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 you don't really hear us. We're not here, go away. And I used to work Burger King when I was a teenager. We'd lock up early sometimes and when our, when our manager or boss wasn't around. And uh, that just really <laughs> upset people. And I, I, we, we shouldn't have done that. But uh, this place was locked down. And so Pastor Dave was determined. He knew that he had a divine appointment that God had set up for him. And so he pulled out his phone and he... He uh, looked up the number online and he called the place and the gentleman was in the back and he came out and he opened the door and let Pastor Dave in and, and he got, got the iPad from Pastor Dave and Pastor Dave looked at him and said something along the lines of this. He said, um, uh, I am going to tell you today how you can go to heaven. That's why God has sent me here. And the man looked at him like he had been hit between the eyes with a rock. And he's, what did you say? And he said, sir... I believe God wants me to tell you how to go to heaven. He said, come on back. Pastor Dave went in the back room and the man shared with him. He said, I have been reading the Bible and the Quran, trying to figure out whether or not I want to be a Muslim or a Christian. He said, I have been confused and I don't really know what to believe. 
Pastor Dave took about, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes, an hour, and answered all these men, this man's questions and walked him through the truth of the Bible. Before Pastor Dave walked out, that man bowed his head, and he was made whole. He was made whole. He received Jesus as a Savior. Why? Because the man needed a friend. This man lacked a friend. And before Jesus showed up, what this man lacked was a physician. He lacked a physician. These were his restrictions. Oh, he could watch other people get in the pool, but he had nobody to put him in the pool. And my friend, if you're here today and you have lacked a spiritual physician, let me introduce you to Jesus Christ, the healer of your broken heart. He wants to take His blood that He shed on the cross. He wants to wash all your sins away. He wants to make you anew. He wants to give you new life. He wants to take that spiritual sickness from you. I can't emphasize enough how important it is that you first understand that you are sick. You're in need of a Savior. Number five and lastly, we see the Lord's restoration. Look down with me at verse number eight and nine. Verse number eight and nine of John chapter five, the Bible says, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. We find, a, we find a Jesus, a Christ, who has the power to heal anybody, no matter what they've done or how sick they are. You say, how capable is Jesus? This is a pretty amazing story, that he touched the legs of a paralyzed man and gave him his strength back, and the man stood up and walked. But you know, it's not the most fascinating story in the Bible. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead several days. You say, I've, I've, I've been a bad person. Can the Lord restore me? Jesus doesn't save you based on how bad you are. He saves you on how righteous He is. He loves you. He became every one of your sins on the cross before you were even born and committed those sins. You become born anew. You become a, a, a resident of heaven by simply believing in Jesus. And so if you're here today and you've not done that, or you're watching online and you haven't done that, would you simply just bow your head and call on the name of Jesus and tell Him you're a sinner and ask Him to come in and save you? For those of you here today that have already done that, can I ask you a question? Do you see the world through the eyes of the compassion of Christ? You know, if we're not careful, we go to Walmart, we go to the grocery store, we go to the gas station, we go to and from work, and we run about our busy lives, and I'll tell you what we see. We see rich and poor. We see colors of skin. We see types of cars and styles of clothes. But we don't see sick people that need the gospel. You say, Pastor, how can I start seeing that? You need to every day pray that God helps you to see others through the eyes of the compassion of Christ. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Is there one here today that would say, Pastor Lejeune, 